Let's go to Acts chapter 2, if you would please. Acts and the second chapter. We'll stand in honor of God's Word. Acts and chapter number 2. Acts and chapter number 2. Many of you familiar with this passage, the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and want to look tonight at the focus of a Spirit-filled church. So let's look at Acts chapter number 2, and we'll read in verse number 1 and following. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these uh, which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in his own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and uh, Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and in Pontus and Asia and um, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya and Cyrene and the strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. They're drunk. Well, that wasn't the case. And so Peter is going to go on in verse number 14 and following and And he's going to preach unto them the gospel. He's going to give the sense as to what was taking place, how that it was a fulfillment of prophecy from Joel. uh, But he's really going to emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of which these men and we are witnesses. That's what he's going to emphasize in uh, this section. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, the focus of a spirit-filled Church, the focus of a spirit-filled church. May God bless the reading of His Word. As you're seated, we'll get into the message this evening. There are many things that have come on the scene in uh, many of our lifetimes that have really changed the way that we live. Now, this would be uh, further back than many of you, but the advent of the automobile certainly changed our lives, didn't it? As far as uh, travel and ability to get around. Of course, the uh, airplane travel and ability to move about the country as we do. The telephone, uh, advent, but then how about this, the cell phone. Do you remember what you did before the cell phone? It's kind of hard to think about, isn't it? It's changed, it really has in so many ways. It has changed our life and and not just the cell phone, but even text messaging and accessing uh, internet by phone. I mean, just an incredible advance of technology. Now, I, w- I would acknowledge tonight that nothing compares, though, to the coming of the Spirit of God. Nothing compares. All those things that I mentioned, they they have made our lives, um, in many ways, 
uh, well, they say easier. Maybe that some of those things have actually complicated our lives. Not sure about the total uh, easier as far as on all those fronts. But I, I know this to be true. The coming of the Spirit of God did not just enhance our Christian and spiritual lives. Without the Spirit of God, our spiritual lives are totally impossible. And so that is the coming of the Spirit of God. As this small band, this small group, assembly of, of these believers were gathered together and they were having a season of prayer as we heard tonight by song and emphasizing that. And the Lord had instructed them to wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit had come. Uh, then it's, it's obvious from what our Lord said about the coming of the Holy Spirit that the Spirit is essential to our Christian lives. If you do a study of the book of Romans, you'll see Paul oftentimes mentioning the role of the Spirit and how that we are Spirit-led and how important that it is that the Spirit of God indwells us and, and how that in Ephesians and other places that we are sealed into the day of redemption and, and how that we are sealed by the Spirit of God. And, and uh, then in 1 Corinthians, how important that the Spirit of God is, is evident to us, of course, as, uh, as uh, one of the persons of the Trinity and how that uh, the natural man does not receive the things of God because they are spiritually discerned, but how that you and I, by the work of the Holy Spirit, can understand spiritual things uh, be, because the Spirit is, is guiding us and helping us to understand. And then you consider the gifts of the Spirit and how that He gifts the members of the church body. All the members of the church body are gifted by the Spirit of God for spiritual service so that the body would be edified. And so, I mean, just a short list, I mean, not to, not to belabor the point, but think about the fruit of the Spirit that we studied this past summer, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, which is, and it talks about all those, the fruit of the Spirit. And then, of course, even bringing us to Christ and placing us in Christ, the, the work of the Spirit of God by way of regeneration, the new birth. All this is the Spirit of God that's involved in our lives. Now, it's clear from a study of uh, uh, modern times that this passage that we're looking at tonight has been abused and has been misconstrued and twisted to fit what people have wanted it to fit. And there's been abuse of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say in our modern times, maybe no other doctrine in the Bible more abused than the Spirit of God. And in the charismatic movement, I know his brother... Uh, W.L. Smith, I'm glad he's able to be here tonight as he travels about uh, globally. One of, the, one of the main things that he does a lot of teaching uh, from the Bible in seminars as well as in churches is helping people around the globe to understand what the Bible says about the work of the Holy Spirit. Because there's not just confusion in the United States of America, but there's also confusion in uh, Latin American countries and in Africa and in Europe and in Asia, basically everywhere in the world. There's a lot of confusion about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit and tongues and revelatory signs and gifts and wonders and, and, uh, and just all kinds of things that are done and that are said to be a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Now, here's, here's what I believe tonight that we should not allow those who hold to those uh, what would be known as the charismatic theology and Pentecostalism and, and uh, a lot of other groups, and it, it would be hard to give an exhaustive list of those who have, um, 
who have misunderstood Scripture and are propagating a misunderstanding of Scripture. But here's the point. We should not allow them to cause us as fundamental Bible believers, Baptists, to shy away from who the Holy Spirit of God is and what the Spirit of God is doing in our modern day and times. And so I'm glad that we're able to come to this study here of Acts chapter 2 and to understand what, what took place here in this uh, time-sensitive situation that was uh, very unique. I, I'm, I'm submitting to you tonight that what took place here is very unique to that, to that locale, to that time, to that situation. And even in, within the book of Acts is very unique. And, and of course, we'll come across it again as we come to Acts chapter 10 and some other passages. But uh, suffice it to say, what um, certain television stations like a TBN or what others are saying and crediting the Spirit of God with doing today is nowhere near what took place right here in the book of Acts. Just in this one point we could make that what is taking place here in book in Acts is known languages, whereas what is propagated in the world of theology is Babel, babblings. Yeah. And the pressure put on people that, that you, uh, some would go so far as to say you've not truly been born again unless you have spoken in tongues. Uh, that's what many of their theological statements would say, regardless of what their practices are. They would say evidence of you being born again would be that you speak with tongues. So if you tonight have not spoken in tongues, there's a likelihood you're not saved, some would say. Some in this assembly have come out of movements that emphasize that and put pressure on people to speak in tongues and to, uh, to buy into that whole route. Well, that's not necessarily our whole intent tonight to give attention to that. But what I'd like to do is to see, okay, what, what did take place here, number one, and to see then what in that situation is timeless regarding the church. What would transcend time as it has gone on and cultures and so forth to come to us right here at 54th and Blackwell and the work of the gospel ministry. In other words, what is the focus of a spirit-filled church? Because Southwest Baptist Church still needs to be a spirit-filled church. And your life needs to be a spirit-filled Christian life. And that's not anything to be alarmed at or afraid of and to think, well, if we're spirit-filled, things will get out of hand. No, actually, when a person's spirit-filled, things are very much under God's hand. And so we're going to see uh, tonight what happened here on the day of Pentecost. The Bible says in verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. So you can see there was a lot of anticipation. Now, it may just simply be that this first verse is indicating, okay, the day of Pentecost came, and thus it was the turning of a calendar page. But, but given the significance of it, I would believe that there is much more to it than just that. There's anticipation, there's preparation, there's, uh, this is a major event that has taken place uh, in the New Testament. And in salvation history, as God has, has brought salvation to man, this is a major event. A new day, in many ways, has come. Uh, for the church, which I would hold to that, that the church was started with Jesus and his disciples. And so what we're reading here in the book of Acts in chapter 2 is not the beginning of the church. The church had already begun with, with Christ. 
And so, uh, but what we have here is certainly a new day in, uh, in, uh, in salvation history. Not Watch this now be, and be careful to hear that correctly. A new day has come, not a new way of salvation. Salvation, since the Old Testament, has always been by grace, through faith, and always will be. That's the only way a person can be saved. So it's not a new way of salvation. But as Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the, for the coming of the Spirit and how the Comforter would come, uh, that would be uh, one that would come alongside of them to help, Jesus told them to wait. Then what we see here in Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. We'll see more about that in coming weeks. But also uh, John the Baptist prophesied and, and, and proclaimed that the church, that, the, that they would be baptized with, with the Holy Ghost and with fire and such as, as he would put it. And then, of course, Jesus told his disciples prior to his crucifixion and resurrection and after his crucifixion and resurrection that they would be uh, filled with the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would come not many days hence. Now, just a side note here. The coming of the Spirit of God then, and this record as we have it of the day of Pentecost, and the 3,000 who were saved, and above the 3,000 who rejected the message, they are all witnesses, 3,000 plus witnesses, to the fact that what Jesus said would happen, happened. Wait a minute, I don't know if you caught that or not. 3,000 plus witnesses that these men spoke in known languages and thus that the Spirit of God actually came. So what Jesus said would happen, happened. Now why is that significant? Well, if Jesus was not who he said that he was, and if Jesus did not rise again, then there would be no day of Pentecost. So what we have here in Acts chapter 2, and especially with their witness to the gospel, we have testimony to the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the faith that we hold on to is not anywhere near like the quote-unquote faiths and world religions. The world religions have people who say things like this, I was in a cave and Allah appeared unto me. And I am coming now and I have a book called the Quran. And you are to believe this and submit to the tenets of it. There were no witnesses. Does everybody hear that? No witnesses that this man named Muhammad met with Allah. There were no witnesses to that. So now there's a whole block of people who are sincere, obviously, in their faith, but unfortunately and sincerely wrong. No witnesses. Joseph Smith says that the angel Moroni appeared unto him. But again, there were no witnesses. Jesus, the Christ, says to his disciples that I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. They witnessed his death. It is very clear that he died. Romans, who were the executioners, who, were, who did, they, they uh, estimate that probably 
Uh, The numbers aren't just right here in my head, but I'm I'm thinking around the number of 10,000 that I've just recently heard uh, of of Jews and individuals who were crucified. These were professional executioners. They said instead of breaking his bones, they pierced his side and forth came blood and water indicating that he had he had deceased so it is very verifiable in history by the witnesses that were there that he died it also is verifiable by the witnesses that were given after his resurrection that he rose again the uh, the apostles who saw him alive the women who saw him alive, the 500 plus who saw him alive. I'm just trying to say tonight, the faith that you and I have is not anything that we need to be ashamed of. In fact, what we need to be is very bold in its proclamation because we're not promoting another world religion. We are propagating and proclaiming the only true and verifiable Witness of God that has witnesses. No other world religion has it. And then the 3,000 that heard, 3,000 plus that heard what happened on Pentecost. You see, what you and I have is something that, that much of history does not have this type of attestation to it. It doesn't have this type of witness power to it. Man, that makes... That makes us ought to rejoice. What you believed is true. I heard that gospel message when I was eight years old and believed into salvation. I didn't know all the all those proofs and truths and witnesses of those accounts. But now that I'm older, I look back and I see that what I believed then is just as true today as it was then. And I was a simple child at that time, and I'm adult now, and I'm still simple. But the Word of God has not changed, and the witness account has not changed. He's still alive. Well, I just thought I'd throw that in for free tonight. Pentecost. What took place here? A new stage in the outworking of God's purposes. Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Jesus, uh, as He died and was risen again... Uh, brought in the new covenant, the New Testament, as as uh, Jeremiah would have spoken of, and Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that that all the Old Testament proclaimed that Messiah would do, and and so Jesus is the only one in all of human history that that has the thumbprint, so to speak, or the the fingerprints of Messiah. He's the only one that ever would fit that that uh, that person is only the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross, rose again, and. Fifty days later is now this day of Pentecost. The day, the day of Pentecost was a day of a harvest, the first fruits, that they would celebrate the first fruits as it would be as of that new year, that harvest year as it was. And, and so here what we have in, in Acts chapter 2 is this day of Pentecost, and it's not, it's not a physical harvest that grabs our attention, but rather it's a spiritual harvest of the first fruits, the Jews who came to faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, as the uh, apostles gave witness to the resurrection of Jesus, those that were gathered there did not object and say, wait a minute, I can show you where his tomb is and that his body is still there because they couldn't do it. And they knew it. He was not there because he'd risen again. 
Many Jews at this time would have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this special day. God had prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy and in other uh, passages in uh, Leviticus that they would make a pilgrimage from various areas to come in to uh, Jerusalem for this holy day after, after the Passover. And so the church is uh, gathered together here and, and praying. And, and so the day of Pentecost is fully come. And when it comes, as they are praying, as you see there, as we had, had read in chapter 1, and they appointed a, a replacement disciple, apostle, for uh, the spot that Judas had left vacant. And so now there are once again 12 apostles, which as we saw the last time we were in Acts, that it was very important that there would be 12 and so now there are 12, they are in place, they are waiting, everything is, is ready for God to do what God was going to do. And thus, in verse number 2, it says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as the rushing of a mighty wind. Now there's no way that tonight I can try to any, in any, any wise try to verbally uh, represent for us what this situation would have been like. We have the word of God on it that that there was a sound that came in. It does not say that the wind came in, but there was a sound that came in like the sound of a mighty wind. Well, we know something about that here in Oklahoma. <laughs> Sounded like a freight train, somebody might say, you know, as a tornado is coming through. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the sound would have been like. All I know is what the Bible says, the sound like a mighty wind. Yep. Well, wind in the Bible as we could see in Ezekiel 37 and other passages, when in the Bible represented the Spirit of God, the life-giving uh, presence of God. And that's why uh, that it would be recorded here in this way. Also, it says in verse number 3 that there was not just an audible representation that the Spirit of God had come, but that there was also a visible representation that the Spirit of God had come. In verse number 3, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, the divided tongues that were there and rested upon each of them. Fire is a, is a uh, symbol of, again, God's presence. When God appeared unto Moses, it was in the bush uh, there that was on fire and that did not consume. Of course, God's presence was represented there. As God came upon Mount Sinai, it was on fire. And, and then as God led them by night, it was by a pillar of fire. And so what we have here is just an evident token to them that the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God had come, that the presence of God was among them in great power, in great glory. And thus the Spirit had come to communicate, and the Spirit of God had come to guide them. In verse number 4, we see that when they were, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God came upon men, it was for special services. And it was at a special time that the Spirit of God would come upon a prophet, and he would give a message. Or the Spirit of God would come upon a certain individual, and he would do a, sp a specific task. Here what we have all at one time is, is the Spirit of God coming, coming to, to uh, the, by way of the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit. All these things are, are taking place. And, and so we have, as recorded here in verse 4, the filling of the Spirit of God. Now what is the purpose of that? Well, let's read on. And it says that as the Spirit of God, they were filled with the Spirit of God, they began to speak with other tongues. Again, known languages, not gibberish. They didn't work themselves into a frenzy until they lost control and started speaking some weird, weird language. It was a known language. In fact, those that were gathered there said, wait a minute, he's speaking whatever language it was that they spoke. Typically in that area, of course, uh, there in the, in the West, 
Uh, they would speak Greek and predominantly in the East Aramaic. And so uh, the Galileans would have been pretty conversant in both of those. But now they were speaking languages from North Africa and, and further east and further north and all around. And so these were Galileans. Galileans were regarded as kind of backward people. You know some? Kind of depends on where you grew up. Uh, some uh, were more backwards. So they were caught off guard. Wait a minute. Here's these people who are not educated in languages of the world who are speaking languages of the world. This is phenomenal. They, it says here that they couldn't understand it. They, they were surprised. They were marveling. They were confounded is the word that is in verse number 6. That these, these men would speak in languages that they understood. Luke goes to the trouble of listing in a very meticulous way. In fact, in verse 5, he mentions how that these, there were in Jerusalem at this time devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, what he has in mind there is that the Jews had, had dispersed because of various reasons into different parts of, of the earth at that time. And so he's saying here, there's, there is a representation in Jerusalem because of the Passover and because many of them had relocated back into uh, Israel at this time and Jerusalem in particular. And so Luke is saying for us that there is a representation from all the places where the Jews had gone, and they were now back, at least for this season, in Jerusalem. So it was noised abroad. In verse number 6, that the multitude, and they came together, and they were confounded that every man heard them speak in their own language. Now, it's most likely that instead of remaining in the house, that they probably went maybe to a op more open area such as the temple. Just to give you a picture here, they uh, could not assemble. We're talking about 3,000 plus people gathered together, so that's a lot of folks to have over at your house. So probably they, they relocated. But all these people gathered together, and as the, 11, uh, as the 12 rather were standing up, Peter standing up among them and pointing out the other 11, that there were gathered together there folks, uh, Jews in particular, from every nation that represented where they went by the dispersion. So let's look at that list here uh, briefly in verse number 9 and following. Parthians, Medes, and uh, Elamites. This, what Luke does is he starts out at the far east. This would be the, uh, those who are in the earliest dispersion under the Assyrians and Babylonians some that uh, were placed there by Artaxerxes uh, as far as even the Caspian Sea. So we're talking about a far, uh, the far reaches there uh, of, of their known world and, and as far as that they relocated and where they set up Jewish settlements. So modern-day Iran is where this is indicating. So individuals from what we know as Iran. Uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, Babylon. That area, modern-day Iraq. So we have folks from Iran, Jews. I'm, now, listen, it's, it's Jewish people who have moved to these locations. So some from Iran, some from Iraq. Uh, Judea, as it's mentioned there, of course, this would be uh, the Davidic and, and uh, kingdom under Solomon, that area of Judea, which may have included some of like what modern-day uh, is Jordan and that area there, some of that, and maybe even some of Syria, just the extent of uh, that area, as it was under uh, Solomon's reign and such, Judea. And then he mentions Cappadocia. You see that in the 
following part of the verse there, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, which would be Asia Minor, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. This would be uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, as, uh, as you would know it, just north of Syria, and which, by the way, is where a lot of the book of Acts is going to take place as far as the events of the book of Acts from chapter 13 through chapter 20. As Paul is on his first and second and third missionary journeys, he's going to spend quite a bit of time in this region. But there were Jewish elements, Jewish settlements and such that had uh, dispersed from Jerusalem and migrated north and, and settled in these regions. And that's very obvious because as you read, say, Galatians and you read uh, Ephesians and other of uh, the epistles, then you find that they have a lot of problem from some of the Judaizers that were there or those who held to uh, the Jewish faith, saying that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised, that they needed to keep the law, and they needed to observe the Sabbath day. Well, that's the reason why they were troubling them is because there were Jewish people living in those areas. Then he says Egypt. There were some there from Egypt, North Africa, obviously. In fact, um, as I did the study, it's indicating that by A.D. uh, 38, uh, that 38 AD, that, that in Alexandria, there in northern Egypt, that there was approximately, some estimate, up to a million Jews living in that area. Of the five wards that were there in Alexandria, they say that two out of the five were predominantly Jewish. And so these individuals had moved south. And then some even a little bit further uh, to the west in Libya. Serene, that is there, would be close to modern-day Benghazi. Anybody heard of Benghazi here lately? And so modern-day Benghazi. So we're talking about northern Africa and and, uh, that region of Libya. Look what else uh, Luke points out. And strangers of Rome, some living in Rome who had come to Jerusalem, Jews and proselytes. He points out that there's some that were Jewish by their lineage and some that were brought into the Jewish faith, Gentiles that were uh, proselytes. It's estimated in Rome that by the beginning of the Christian era that there's approximately forty to 60,000 Jews living in Rome. So there's a significant number of Jews who are living there in Rome, some of whom would have come here for Pentecost. Uh, then he, meets, he mentions Crete, so the island of Crete. Of course, uh, we know Titus was there in Crete. And a Jewish element that was found there, and the, in fact, even some of the false doctrine that, or some of the doctrine that, Jew, that Titus had to contend, had a Jewish strand to it. And so that's, uh, it's no wonder that he had to contend against that because of the Jews that were there, as well as some, as he mentions here, in Arabia, the Arabians that were there. So Jews living in this area. Uh, in fact, as I signed up some of the guys there at the, uh, at the oil change place that are from Jordan, I pulled up Jordan on my, on my iPhone and said, okay, tell me, show me where you lived. And so he pointed out some places and he said, hey, there's a, here's an ancient city that you might study sometime named Petra. And so it may be that some were living in that area, Jews even back then, and the Roman, uh, of course, empire that was covering that land at that time. But the point being this, Jews were spread out everywhere. But God saw to it that on the day of Pentecost... Jews from every region, every nation, as Luke says, where they had dispersed, they all came back. Why do you call people back? Why do you call people together? Well, you call people together if you've got a special announcement to make. You ever call for a special family meeting? Some young lady gets engaged, 
what is she going to do? I want to get the whole family together. I want to get everybody together and, and make a special announcement. And all she's got to do is just hold up her hand. Got engaged. Okay, it happens here quite often, right? Special announcement. Got a special announcement to make. Uh, whenever a, a corporation or whatever maybe is making a special announcement, they get everybody together. What's God doing? God has a special announcement to make. God has a special message for Jews that are scattered everywhere. Where's the gospel supposed to go first? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. God saw to it that Jews from all over, which which tells us something about the intent of the gospel, it's not to stay in one region with one people. It's to spread everywhere. And God, in a very quick fashion, brought... I don't have any numbers as to the total number who were there that heard Peter, a Jew, stand up on that day and say, This same Jesus that she crucified is risen again. At one time, all those Jews heard the gospel message. The door of salvation was wide open. And 3,000 were saved. It's remarkable. So, here in this brief span of time, on the day of Pentecost, God fulfilled His promises. God empowered the church for witnessing. God took the gospel to the Jews. And God demonstrated on this one day, in this one brief amount of time, God demonstrated that the gospel is to have a global focus all at one time. So what was the focus of the coming of the Spirit of God upon that early church? Well, the focus of the Spirit of God upon that early church was not for their entertainment. It was not for their showmanship. It was not to try to impress people with these speaking of tongues. But what the intent of the coming of the Spirit of God then, as it moved upon them and gave them utterance to speak in other languages, it was indicating this. It was was representing that the gospel is to be witnessed into all the world. So the focus of a Spirit-filled church then was witnessing the gospel everywhere. That was what the focus was then. Now, now here tonight, we must be very careful because what took place at Pentecost is not taking place now. Why? We have the Bible. We have the New Testament. It has been given to us. And thus Paul said that there'd come a time when tongues would cease. So we can't make the same application that tonight... If you get spirit-filled, I'll tell you what's going to happen, brother or sister, that you're going to stand up and start speaking in tongues. Nope. Not legitimately so. Yep. But I'll tell you what will happen if you're spirit-filled. Spirit-filled just simply means that you're allowing the Spirit of God to control you. The focus of a spirit-filled church is this, giving witness to the gospel. That's the focus. Still today, of a spirit-filled church, is giving witness to the gospel. Why? Because the only way the world can understand the gospel is from the Word of God, which requires, then, that believers 
transport the Word of God. And believers cannot do that in their own power and strength. They must be empowered by the Spirit of God, which again, I hope you've got it by now, is not something weird or ecstatic or or just wild and crazy. No, actually, the power of the Spirit of God upon your life and upon my life and upon our church is for the intent of sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, and thank God for His resurrection. The Spirit of God wants to empower us to give witness to that to everybody that we come in contact with. That's the intent. Therefore, you and I need to be Spirit-filled believers. That's for every believer. It is not optional. Spirit-filled. Paul said, uh, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What's the evidence of being Spirit-filled? Well, the evidence of being spirit-filled is that you're speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a, there's a joyfulness about your life. You're giving thanks to God and, and that you're submitting one to another and, and that you're fulfilling your role as a husband. You're fulfilling your role as a wife. You're fulfilling your role as a parent. You're fulfilling your role as a child. And you're giving witness to the gospel. That is the work of the Spirit of God. Yep. The church is... I, I like this... Um, uh, what uh, preacher said about the church. The church is God's local solution for a worldwide need. The church, Southwest Baptist Church, is God's local solution to a worldwide need. That's what His church is. So a Spirit-filled church gives witness to the gospel. You know, there's a lot of things a church can get focused on, though, isn't there? Church could get focused on world events. Church could get focused on uh, social events. Do you, you say you think we ought not to be focused on some of those moral and social issues of our day? Absolutely. I think we should, but we better be careful because our focus, the focus of a spirit-filled church is the gospel. Is this making sense to everybody? Um, the church could get focused on um, combating false doctrines. Should we do that? Absolutely. It's given to us by God to propagate proper and right doctrine. But let's not get caught off on a bunch of tangents and get away from the main thing. A church could get pretty focused on fellowship. I love fellowship, which we're going to have here in just a few minutes, which involves food. That's a blessing. I enjoy fellowship and, and, and being involved in such, but, but wait a minute. This is not a social club. This is not for us just to come and enjoy one another's presence. No, wait a minute. Let's not lose this here. If we're spirit-filled, then spirit-filled people are concerned about getting the gospel out, which as you get the gospel out, you fellowship with others. It all works together that way. They fellowship. They had times of meals together and such as that. So I'm not saying that that's just all that we ever do is just propagate the gospel. No, I certainly understand the need for fellowship like what we're having and what we have along the way. Hey, I'm all in favor of activities. But do you realize tonight that a church could get so so focused on activities and events even, even good events, that the church gets distracted from the main purpose of the church being here and that's to propagate the gospel? 
And thus all of our energy and time could go into making this event or this activity something that is great and wonderful. And and I'm all for doing things great and wonderful and right. But listen, let's not forget that the reason Jesus has left us here on this earth is to give testimony to his resurrection to a lost and dying world. And the reason that the Spirit of God has given to us is to help us grow in our spiritual lives so that we can give witness to the gospel. That's the intent. A church could get focused on problems. And we got all these problems. We better deal with that. I, I realize that we can, we'll have problems along the way. But let's not forget the reason why we even deal with problems is so that we can get the gospel further. The church could get focused on the buildings. We just had a presentation tonight. Need new this, new that. Need more space, need this, need that. You know, I mean, it's just going to be part of life. But Why? It's not just what, and it's not just how, but it's why. The big why is this, the name of our Savior that must go further. That's it. The church could get focused on trends and growth for the sake of growth itself. The church could get focused on programs and such. But here's here's the question tonight. What will be the focus of a Spirit-filled church? Well, when the Spirit of God filled those early believers, what did they do? They stood and they proclaimed, Jesus is alive. If your life is spirit-filled, what is going to be one of the marks, at least as we'd have it here from the book of Acts, what would transcend time, I believe would be this, a spirit-filled believer is taking opportunities that are given to them and making some to proclaim, Jesus is truly alive. And there's only one way to salvation. And let me tell you how. You can know for sure you're going to heaven. Are you living a spirit-filled life? Well, measure how's your gospel witness. If there's not a gospel witness that is there, and if there's not a passion about that gospel witness, then there must be a passion in some other area that's taken away from that passion. Because a spirit-filled believer is going to be very passionate, as we see here through the book of Acts. They were very passionate, very sold out, very surrendered to their, the intent of their life being that my life is to be for the, for the furtherance of the gospel. Yeah. Man. This past week in our uh, personal spiritual development class, we had a quote from Jim Berg that, that said uh, along these lines that apathy doesn't mean that a person is just kind of going through the motions, say at church or whatever, but that their passion has shifted to something or someone other than God and His Word. So where's our passion? And the work of the Spirit of God, if I'm understanding Acts chapter 2 right, is that when the Spirit of God fills a man, a woman, a boy or girl that's saved, they want to share the gospel. Remember what it was like when you first were saved? Man, you just wanted to tell everybody. Well, it ought not to be, well, let me tell you what it was like when I was first saved. It ought to be, let me tell you what it's like since I've been saved. Every day, I just can't wait to share with somebody how they can know for sure the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to characterize all of our lives because it's the work of the Spirit of God in us to highlight the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. Be wary Beware of any ministry where the Holy Spirit highlights himself. 
The purpose of the Spirit is not to bring attention to himself, but to bring attention to Christ. Wherever you see an excessive focus on the Spirit of God, you better, you better beware because something's off. But where there's a church whose main intent is to run buses, invite people, have a friend day or whatever it may be, so that somebody hears about Jesus, the Spirit of God is doing something there. Thank God for it and stay submitted to the Spirit of God. Let Him control your life so that the gospel goes further through you. Father, tonight, we thank you for your goodness to us. And, Lord, we know that the Spirit of God has come, as has been revealed here in the book of Acts. And I pray, dear Lord, because there could be things that have hindered the work of the Spirit where we could quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit, and thus that the gospel would not have free course. I know Paul called on the church to pray that the gospel would have free course and be able to make a difference. And Lord, as we prepare, as we're looking forward to uh, lost people being here, even on Friend Day, dear God, I'm looking forward to that. I pray that, Lord, you would help us to give witness to the gospel. I pray, dear God, that um, as you send your church out, Lord, into the mission field, just right here in Oklahoma City, that you'd help us to go out, dear God, under the leadership of the Spirit, in a day-by-day way, just in a practical way, to be sensitive to the Spirit's leadership for the sake of your name, I pray. Amen. Let's stand together tonight.